Well, please turn back in your Bibles to that passage that uh, Kevin read to us a moment ago. My text for this evening is from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, which I think is somewhat of a commentary on Isaiah 56, 9 through 57, where the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. This is heavy-duty stuff, and uh, we need God's help to listen and to appropriate rightly what he's saying to us. So let's ask for God's help as he speaks to us from his word tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you that every word of Scripture is God-breathed and useful. We pray that you would minister to us this evening. We pray supremely that we would find our joy, our satisfaction, our peace, our stability, our security in the only one in the cosmos who can give it, the Lord Jesus himself. And we pray this for his name's sake. Amen. After the glories of the gospel that Isaiah had been seeing and savoring and sharing, namely the finished work of the Redeemer in Isaiah 53 and the gathering in of the redeemed to his house of prayer for all nations, which we thought about last Sunday evening. The tone in 56.9 dramatically and jarringly changes from the language of welcome and inclusion to the very shocking language of judgment and warning. It's like day and night. Why? Because the prophecy of Isaiah in this section focuses on two realities. It focuses on the ultimate future reality that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross and the immediate present reality of what life is like before that great day. The Apostle Peter makes a reference to this principle um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 to 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that must follow. What Isaiah is doing was looking forward. He was probably ministering at this time in the reign of Hezekiah. He's the last king that he's mentioned that he ministered to in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's probably towards the end of Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah at this point had suffered quite a very severe illness. They'd been surrounded by the Assyrians and the Lord sent the angel and dealt with that dramatically. But the stress of that situation, I think, affected him physically. And he was miraculously healed and given an extension of his life. And then he went and showed off all his treasury to the, to the people of Babylon or the, or the envoys from Babylon. So he's ministering into that situation. This is before the Babylonian captivity. But he's looking forward to the ultimate reality. But he's also, as a pastor, dealing with what's in front of him. 
So against the future ideal was the present reality, which we find was a mixture of darkness and light. It was a mixture of wickedness and righteousness. It was a mixture of idol worship and all the debauchery that characterizes it and the devotion of the Lord's true people and the hope and joy and peace that characterizes the Lord's genuine blood-bought people. Put it another way, in Isaiah's in Isaiah's day, as he looked at the people of his day, he, uh, who professed to be God's people, he saw the church that was a mixed bag. A mixed bag of true believers and false believers. Now, into that reality, the Lord speaks quite dramatically so that the complacent and the proud idol worshippers would be warned and woken up to the terrible destruction that they were facing, and turn and become contrite and lowly in spirit, and take their refuge in the Lord, which every person is invited to do in Isaiah 57, 13 at the end. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. That too... I think is the message of the New Testament as the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia. My text says in Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So as we walk through this text this evening from 56-9 to 57-21, the Lord shows us three things, I believe. You'll see them probably on the screen behind me. It's a bit tiny, but we'll walk through them. He shows us two families that are compared with one another. That will be the longest point, by the way, just so we're tracking. We're going to meet around the Lord's table. We will be meeting around the Lord's table this evening. The longest point is the first one, where two families are compared. That's where the bulk of the text is. Secondly, two final destinations are contrasted. That's the shorter point. And then the shortest of all point is the high and exalted one speaks. So two families are compared, the families of the mockers and the mourners. Now let me be clear, the Lord sets these two families before us, they are not the church versus the world. It would be very tempting to do that, wouldn't it? It would be very tempting to say, we're the good people in here and all the bad ones are out there. That's not what you see in the context of this passage. This is the confines within the covenant, the professing covenant community of Israel, a.k.a. the church of God of that day. Therefore, that should shock us. It's a terrible thing to realize that those who profess Christ can live at the same time such depraved lives. I've called this, I've called them the family of the mockers, which I take from 57 verse 4 and the family of the mourners, which I take from 57 verse 18. We discover that the mockers are the family of the sorceress and the prostitute, 57 verse 3, and the mourners, who are now the true people of God, who have by His grace become ashamed because, in the words of our modern chorus, they, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And they have become, the mockers have become mourners. 
and we see them in 57, 18 through 19. So what I want to do, as I say this evening, is give you an overview of the characteristics of the mocker, the family of the mockers, and then an overview of the heart life of the mourners. And I do that deliberately because my prayer and my passion is that each and every one of us might know to which family we truly belong. And therefore we can leave here knowing by sovereign grace we are in his family of mourners. I think that's why Isaiah is given this. That's why he says things like he says he's going to say, which are quite hard to hear. But in 56, 9 through 12, we have, we're looking at the family of the mockers. In 56, 9 through 12, we have the Lord's sentence of death pronounced over his delinquent leaders. Now, the twofold role of a, of a leader of God's people is to do two things primarily. To guard his people from external dangers, that's why they're called Israel's watchmen, 56 verse 10, and to care for their internal needs, 56 verse 11. That's why they're called shepherds, watchmen, shepherds. That's the the two roles. What does the Lord show us about the leaders of the church of that day? He shows us that they're incompetent, 56 verse 10, they're blind, ignorant, mute guard dogs. That would be That would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Who would buy a mute guard dog? How does this dog guard? It can't bark. Well, it's not much of a guard dog, is it? They are incompetent. They are self-obsessed in feathering their own nests. Chapter 56, verse 11. 56, 12, they're addicted to wine and beer to satisfy their insatiable quests for pleasure. It's quite an indictment against the leaders of God's people in those days. When we apply that to ourselves as people in responsibility and leadership within the New Testament, it is stern warning that James says in chapter 3, verse 1 of his letter, not many of you should be teachers because those who teach will be judged more strictly. And Jesus himself emphasizes this point In Matthew 24, 48 through 51, he says, But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. Then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible thing. But here in Isaiah, we're seeing the family of the mockers is being led by people who are utterly and totally self-obsessed, incompetent wine and beer addicts. Notice that the indictment increases in its intensity because we have this what appears to be a throwaway statement made in 57 verses 1 through 2 the righteous perish and no one takes it to heart the devout are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away why to be spared from evil those who walk uprightly enter into peace 
they find rest as they lie in death. Peace, brackets, 57. Brackets it in, in 57 verse 1 and 2, and brackets it in 57, 19. Peace brackets this section. But the point that the Isaiah is making is, the Lord takes home to rest and peace the righteous and devout amongst his people, his salt and light in the community, and nobody takes it to heart. Nobody understands that this is a sign of God's impending judgment from which he is sparing them. The Lord says quite a bit about the death of his people. They are precious in his sight. Psalm 116, 15. It means, therefore, does it not, that there is no such thing as an untimely death of a Christian. There cannot be an untimely death of a Christian. I guarantee you there's going to be an unwelcome death of Christians for us. But in God's economy, in God's providence, there's no such thing as an untimely death for one of the Lord's beloved people. They're taken home and enjoy everlasting joy and they're spared so much evil on planet Earth. And in 57, 3 through 13, we're introduced to the children of the sorceress, the offspring of adulterers and prostitutes, whom the Lord summons and calls to account. Verse 3, 57, but you come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Now a sorceress is a woman who has willingly opened herself up to the control of a demonic spirit. An adulterer is a man who has broken faith with his wife and is often used in scripture of God's covenant people breaking faith with him. James chapter 4 verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not realize that friendship with the world is enmity against God? And a prostitute is is a woman who hires herself out to so-called other lovers. This is a very, very damning indictment of God's professing people. And I would say this, that the, that the Lord through Isaiah, similar to Paul in Galatians, uses very, very graphic and shocking imagery here. The original Hebrew language in this section is very graphic. It is Certificate 18 material which I'm going to go over briefly to spare my wife blushes anymore. In 57, 5 through 8, we have a very graphic expose of their hearts. Notice how it begins, 57 verse, sorry, 57 verse 5. You burn with lust under the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines under the overhanging crags. These people are literally burning with lust, and at the same time, they're they're butchering their children. Why? Because they are fueled by their idolatrous allegiance to the Canaanite fertility cult of Baal worship. The heart of this is idolatry. 
The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yet, to, Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. Idolatry is literally exchanging the Lord for idols. And it always leads to debauchery. You find that in Exodus 32 with the golden calf incident. The idolatrous worship led to immorality of the most gross, awful kind. You see that in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 27. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, which led to the most horrendous forms of graphic description of sexual immorality that we have in the Bible. Why? Because idolatry always creates obsessive, addictive, and self-destructive desires. And I know that my pronunciation of this Greek word is correct. It's called epithumia. It is mentioned 38 times in the New Testament. It is mentioned in the minority of times in a positive way, but in the vast majority of times, it is mentioned in a negative way. Other ways of translating that word are coveting, hyper-desires, lusts, insatiable longings, which drive people into self-destructive behaviors and damages those around them as well. There was a film that was popular some years ago called Fatal Attraction, which actually brought this out in a very clear graphic way. And that's the heart of these people. They're burning with lust and butchering their children because their hearts are so deeply embroiled in idol worship. As I say, it's very graphic language, so I want to move on. 58 lines through 10, sorry, 57 9 through 10, I've got the wrong reference in my notes. 57 9 through 10, where it says in the, in, in, uh, the version we read, you went to the king, in the NIV it says you went to Molech. The point of 58 9 through 10 is that they had, because they had forsaken the Lord as their all satisfying pleasure, They had turned to foreign powers, the king, as the source of their security and protection. This may be, I don't know for sure, this may be a reference to Hezekiah going and showing the envoys of Babylon all the wonders of his treasury. Because he was trying to suck up to the next big boy on the block who's going to protect them. If you have no pleasure in the Lord, you become very, very insecure One of the other marks of idolatry is a a, a perpetual sense of insecurity. So if you can't find your pleasure in the Lord, you won't find your security in the Lord either. You look elsewhere for it. What we have in 57.11 is the Lord showing us what is at the root of his people who are forsaking him, exchanging him for idols not being true to him, not remembering him, and at the same time literally driven by fear and dread 
And so they're mocking him. Here's the reason. You do not fear me. That's what he says in 57.11. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I, is it because I have been long silent that you do not fear me, that you do not fear me? There's no fear of God. Now, when we lose the awesome fear and respect and delight and satisfaction in the Lord, we will, almost as a reflex action, turn to idols to seek for that which only the Lord can and is willing to give us. We must worship something. We are insatiably made for worship. Now, the fear of the Lord is never cringing terror. It is an awesome delight in the wonder of who he is and of who he is to you. It is an expression of true adoring worship and wonder that so fears to break his heart because it's a love relationship that you treasure above all things, therefore you fear to damage that relationship in any way. That's the biblical fear of the Lord. But those who mock him, there is no fear of the Lord. But what we find in the, fear of the, in, in the family of the mockers, there is no fear of the Lord. Fear of everything else, but no fear of the Lord. How we contrast that with his family of the mourners, which we turn to now, 5713b through to 19. <coughs> Excuse me. We have the Lord's heart analysis of his family of mourners. He describes them as, as mourners in 5718. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort. To Israel's mourners, he describes them in 57.15 as contrite and lowly. Contrite is a deep feeling expressing profound regret and repentance in recognition that you have done something wrong. The, the root of the Hebrew word contrite means dust. It is literally a recognition of who we are before the Lord. What was the raw material that God made Adam and Eve out of? Dust. <laughs> okay? And, 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 the, and to be given the gift of a contrite heart is to recognize you don't come from the most promising material. You're dust. That's why Job says what he says in, 40, in Job 42, 56. My eyes have... My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I know who I am now. Now that I've seen you, I know who I truly am. I'm dust. That's contrite. Isaiah feels the same, has the same experience as Job in Isaiah 6 through it's uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When he says, woe is me, he literally says, I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm being decreated. What do we know 
of those experiences in our own hearts and lives. So he describes his true family as contrite. He describes them as lowly, which is literally a liberating recognition of who you are and who I am compared to the Lord. He describes them, as I said, as Israel's mourners, those who grieve over their sin and are incredibly sensitive to their sin. We were thinking about that in the prayer meeting earlier on, that we, when we pray for revival, we're praying for an increased sense of how holy he is and how unholy we are. Jesus himself says this, does he not, in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. These are the heart characteristics that the Lord gives us of his family, those who are mourning over their sins of mockery, of their idolatry, of their unfaithfulness. So when we sing that line again, it'll mean something more more deep, I hope. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. You see, this is the Lord's heart analysis of the family of the mockers compared to his family of the mourners. Next we see the two destinations. This is a shorter point. We are tracking with time in my mental clock in my head and the one on the wall. Unrepentant God mockers will be devoured. 56 verse 9. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Unrepentant God-mockers will be terribly abandoned to their life choices. 57.13, when you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off, a mere breath will blow them away. Unrepentant God-mockers will never ever experience his peace in this life or the next, 57, 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest. Their waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace in this life. No peace in the next life. But... We love the word but, do we not? It's a good Bible word, is but. Look at verse 13, 57, 13, halfway through, but. Whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountains because repentant mourners will be comforted by taking refuge from his wrath in him. There's only one safe place from the wrath of God. That's in the Son of God. That's what we'd be celebrating around the communion table. This is how we take refuge in him. Because God struck his son with the full fury of his wrath and we take refuge in the son, there's no wrath left for us to bear. He bore it all. That's comforting, isn't it? And they will also enjoy his spirit 
reviving intimacy. Fifty-seven, fifteen. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. (coughs) I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He's an amazing God who is utterly transcendent and far above the cosmos that he spoke into existence and he dwells in eternity. And Ephesians tells us that Christ fills the entire cosmos and he dwells, he lives, he takes up residence, he tabernacles with also those, the, the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, we experience his reviving spirit in our hearts and lives, that's comforting, isn't it? And they will experience his sinner-justifying comfort. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, one of the great treaties that runs through the book of Isaiah, like Blackpool through a stick of rock, is justification by faith. Here it is, here's Romans 8 chapter 1 in Isaiah speak, 57, 16 through 18, I will not accuse them forever, nor will I be ang- nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. Verse 18, I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners. That sinner justifying comfort. And they will express their joy-filled praise of him because his blood bought peace is upon them and heals them. 5719, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. What was the first thing Jesus said when he appeared in the upper room? Peace. Look at my hands and side. Look at the scars of your sin on my body forever. Peace, peace. And the high and the exalted one speaks. So as we draw to a conclusion, as we move from this part of our service and prepare our hearts to come around his table, I just want to ask you to answer in your own hearts this question. How is the high and exalted one speaking to you from his word this evening? Is he speaking to you as your judge? There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Or is he speaking to you as your saviour? Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord. And I will heal them. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Two families are compared. Two destinations are contrasted because the high and exalted one 
speaks. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have already told us in this prophecy of Isaiah that your word that goes out from your mouth will not return to you empty but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. Father, if there are any in this room, in this meeting this evening, who entered as mockers, grant that your sovereign grace will turn them into mourners and that we will know the overwhelming comfort that comes to us through Christ this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory and for our everlasting joy. Amen.